0: We are and always will be a nation of immigrants. This is my country, my damn country. Give me my country, you can keep the rest. Bold men and women yearning for freedom and opportunity who leave their homelands and come to a new country to start their lives over. We were strangers once too. My country, my damn country. Give
1: me my country, you can keep the rest. Hello, 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 aliens and allies. Your friendly Russian is here this is we the aliens podcast i'm your host sasha kapustina thank you for tuning in i hope you're well i hope you're safe i hope your loved ones are safe i hope you voted or registered and made plans because i don't get to and i trust you to make the good choices anyway the psa part is over I am really excited for you to meet this week's guest and this is how I feel about this whole thing. I feel that we are this big alien tribe here in the U.S. and this podcast is for us to meet each other because we have some really cool people among us. My guest today, Inbal Lesnar, is an Emmy and Eddie nominated film and TV editor. She is a producer and writer. She's a mom. She is an immigrant from Israel. And she is a total rock star. She is one of the creators of the show Seduced Inside the Nexium Cult. It's a documentary series that premiered yesterday on STARS and is now streaming on Amazon and on Hulu and wherever you get your TV fix. I haven't watched it yet, but I am definitely looking forward to it. Sex, violence, money, manipulation, and horrific abuse, and all of that under the banner of a multi-level marketing scheme for bettering self. I may be a bit biased here, but it sounds like a quintessentially American story to me. So in this episode of the podcast, Inbal and I don't really talk about the show. <laughs> Tune in on Thursday for that. Today we talk about how Inbal got where she is now. One more thing. In the conversation, the assassination of the Israeli Prime Minister, Itzhak Rabin, comes up. And I want to give a brief context to those of you who may not be familiar with that story. And I think I'm going to start doing those little history Uh, footnotes, if you will, because we talk about stories from different countries and not everybody always knows uh, what's going on. So if you read the news, you occasionally come across a combination of words, Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Most recently, Jared Kushner was in charge of resolving it. And I will certainly not get into it right now. Uh, it's too complex and politicized So here's a brief summary uh israeli-palestinian conflict started with the creation of the state of israel in 1948 or even before depends how you look at it it's territorial it's religious it's political it's economic it's a mess and nobody has been able to really figure it out for 70 years now and it remains a source of violence in the region suffering of the people And instability in the world. So Itzhak Rabin was the prime minister of Israel twice, actually. First in the 70s and then in the 90s when he was elected on the platform of peace process. He was one of the architects of the Oslo Accords that were supposed to become the path to solving the conflict. The measure remains controversial, but arguably uh, is the best attempt so far at that for which he was awarded the 1994 Nobel Prize along with Shimon Peres and the Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat in 95 Rabin was assassinated by a right-wing extremist who opposed the signing of the accords and opposed the peace process and that moment became a turning point from a hope for peace to more violence that moment was also a turning point for Inbal. And
0: here's our conversation. I grew up, born and raised in Israel. I had to uh, go to do my military service there. What did you do? Because I had taken a filmmaking program in high school, I already had those skills. I was recruited to do the same thing for the Israeli army. So basically, I was a training films producer and editor for the engineering corps. So I was doing training films about explosives and landmines and all kinds of commando training in how to defuse or detonate landmines and roadside bombs. I considered it very important work and I felt I was contributing a lot. It wasn't easy. I hated being in the army. Tell me a little bit more about that, because
1: <laughs> it is, a, it is a, well, for most Americans and for most people in the world, mandatory military service is a foreign concept, especially for women.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's so normal and mundane to go. It's just like part of Israeli life and experience, at least it was for me growing up. I mean, everybody I know went. Mm-hmm. And like the most pacifist, You know, non conforming people. And like my boyfriend in high school was like that at the time. And Mm -hmm. the most he was able to do is get out of a frontline service or what we call Kavi, like combat service, to um, more maybe office or some kind of unit like I was in. Um, There was like a filmmaking or multimedia unit that wasn't considered combat. Women, at least in my time we're not doing combat service. So most women are kind of wasted away just kind of working an office job and hating every second of it. I was using my, you know, skills that I had already learned in high school to do something that I thought was, you know, highly skilled, for sure. Productive and helpful. So I I thought I was contributing something important. Here, people think it's, like, so um, exotic, you know? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's really far less exotic or strange or glamorous than one might expect. I just had to be in pretty ugly uniform and, you know, be under the command of a chauvinistic dude. Dude.
1: Yeah, I remember when I first got to Israel. For me, it was one of those big shocks. Is is you get on the bus and a bunch of kids with guns get on the bus with you, and you know that by law they have to carry their gun with them, and they're but they're just little
0: girls. I'm glad I was able to use cameras and editing systems as my you know military contribution. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to know what my training films were used for. I really don't. It's weird because I stayed after my military service. I got a job as a civilian working for the Israeli aircraft industries, which is basically a weapon manufacturer, manufacturing corporation. I don't even know how much I should say about this. But I think that was one of the reasons I ended up leaving. You know, I felt like I was part of this machine of war. And I was really uncomfortable with that. I can imagine.
1: Yeah, I I remember for me, there were two main things that I realized after living in Israel for a little bit that I couldn't adjust to ever is the religious element of the society which I just grew up in an atheist country. So to me, that was too much. And that weird relationship Israelis have with the war where they literally say, when the next war happens, blah, 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 blah. And to me, that was a bizarre way of
0: living. I always say Israel is a country where at least half the population has severe firsthand PTSD, And the other half has secondhand PTSD.
1: Yeah.
0: And people drive like that. They behave like that. They leave like that. It does have that sense, like the next war or something terrible is around the corner. I mean, it's hard to, I think, perceive it any other way where history shows it's just a recurring pattern and has been for many generations. And I think you know, in the 90s, there was a feeling of change in the air. I mean, I was a teenager and the peace talks, you know, what Rabin was doing, finally talking to, en- to people we always considered enemies and that were not people we're supposed to even trust or talk to. There was some breakthrough and there was a feeling that, you know, I grew up thinking there is another way I was As an elective, I took Arabic instead of French in junior high. When those were the two options, I figured I need to speak the language of my neighbors. I believed that economy and economical oppression was the source of violence and that those things can be resolved with the right education. Call it naive, but I was very much on that kind of Peace Now movement at least, you know, as a young teenager, not even of a voting age yet. And, you know, the assassination of Rabin was, I think, one of the monumental kind of milestones of my young adult life. How old were you? Rabin was assassinated on November 4th, 1995. And it was my first year in the army. I was 18. And I had thoughts about going through that peace rally. And, you know, I was never a protest or or a demonstration person. I kind of have fear of crowds, and I just didn't go. And I remember hearing the news, and it was, I think, a big defining moment for me of kind of broken illusions and broken hope and just feeling like this one opportunity that we had to change the course of history was shattered. As a young person, it was hard to process, and in those years, there was a huge wave of migration out of Israel of young people that um, is really not widely spoken about. Mm -hmm. Was that an a dream for you? It wasn't intentional or conscious for me. I had this dream of going to a university. I think it was because I had in high school a really influential professor called Danny Mujan. And he told us about going to a summer program at NYU. And I just had this like idea of it that was pretty cool. And so I just started looking into where I would go to pursue higher education. And I was considering schools all over the world. And I was looking into London and the United States, obviously for the language, like I couldn't go anywhere, but. Right. At that point, I was young and I thought the world was my oyster and I could be wherever, do whatever. I wasn't that afraid yet. And it was true, right? Like at that point, you could. I, I mean, I I just figured I'd apply. What can I lose? What's the worst that can happen? I just looked at the possibilities. I didn't really, I wasn't aware of the, the difficulties and obstacles as much. Uh, those became apparent later. All those things that are integral parts of growing up in America like you go to your admission counselor and you write your essay and you go to and you have this SAT prep in school and like everything is geared to you going to college that was not my experience so I had to kind of figure it all out for myself where do you take the SATs in Israel how do you prep for it um, what else do you have to do? How do you write an essay in English? I mean, I took English in high school, but it was not the same. Right. Um, yeah, no, it's all very
1: impressive because I never even had a, a concept of doing that. It, it felt, from Russia, it felt like such a, another universe that anyone who comes out here to do that as a foreign student, to me, it's like, how did you come up with that idea? How did you think that that was possible?
0: I don't know. I keep going back to that teacher I had in high school and thinking maybe that was one. What did he say?
1: Did he suggest it specifically to you or just to the whole class?
0: And he showed us a black and white film that he did in the NYU summer filmmaking class. And it just seemed like like the coolest thing to do. And I was like, I'm going to try. So I did this little trip. I did all these college tours and my Strongest memory, and I did the NYU College Tour in the School of Visual Arts, also in New York College Tour. I, has, I had some relatives in the New York area, so that felt less alone and scary. Uh, you know, Jewish relatives who can be, you know, a creative thing. It was a second cousin once removed, but it was enough to have like some anchor, some family, and not be completely alone. Uh, also, a tour at Columbia University. They don't have a filmic. They at the time didn't have a filmmaking undergraduate program but I was like oh I'm here I might as well go and you know you call and you make the appointment and they'll have you and so I'm there alone and everybody's there in like suits and like really preppy looking with their parents and they walk us around the campus and they showed us all these things that are like this is 100 years old and this room is 200 years old and like for an Israeli that doesn't sound that impressive I mean, I come from a country where everything is 5,000 years old, so it's not, it's like, okay, 200 years old. And I didn't know what Ivy League was, like what it would mean really for me to go there. I had no idea. The tour ends in this conference room, and it has this huge, heavy mahogany table that, like, you know, that's 200 years old, and it was carved probably by, I don't know, maybe slaves, I don't know. It was just... It was all, had the aura of upper class. I felt really foreign there. I couldn't put my finger on it at the time, but there's something about like this Ivy League air. White air? Exactly. I didn't feel rich enough, white enough, or privileged enough to compete with that. So I applied to both School of Visual Arts and NYU. Um, I actually ended up meeting this guy in New York, the first man who actually spoke to me in this crazy city. And so it was a combination of being really impressed with these two schools and seeing myself there and meeting this guy that I quickly fell in love with that, you know, helped me make the decision. Yes, I want to go to New York. I'm not going to pursue the application with the school in London. I think New York might be the place for me. And so I got really lucky that when I filled out the application for NYU, I checked the box to say, yes, I'd like to be eligible for a special scholarship that they were offering to film students with experience in filmmaking. Mm. And since I had the experience from school in the army, I was like, yeah, I think I have what, you know, the requirements for that particular scholarship. And I ended up winning, um, which is a whole crazy story within itself, but I was the first international student that won that particular full tuition scholarship to NYU. Oh, wow. And it was like one undergraduate student a year and one graduate student a year that got it. And um, yeah, I didn't even understand that it was life-changing at that moment because looking back, I I wouldn't have been able to really come up with the money to finish my degree. But that was a game changer. And so I ended up going to NYU film school. And I actually flew the day after my sister's wedding straight into first day of orientation week at NYU. There was like no moment to spare. Do you remember taking that flight?
1: Do you remember what, what were you thinking?
0: You know, it, was, it did feel like a big step. It was a big deal, but I was I felt like I was a little bit of a chameleon. You know, I did learn that about myself, that you can drop me where you want and I'll just adjust somehow. And don't forget that I met this guy that I was mentally in love with. And so I was going to pursue not only my dream of education and, you know, learning filmmaking with one of the best film schools in the world, but also pursuing this romance. There was a lot of excitement and obviously mixed with anxiety and and trepidation. What were you most afraid of? Interacting in English was a concern, and learn, like whether I can manage academic level text in English. And I had this requirement for my scholarship. I had, if I remember correctly, maintain a grade point average above 3.7. For people who don't know, 4.0 is an A, is like 100. So it's something like, I don't know, maybe the equivalent of having like 92 and over. I mean, it was a really high GPA to maintain, and I could have, I could lose my scholarship and therefore probably have to leave school if I didn't get that. So that became my driving force through the next three years. Right. I had to get A's all the time. There was no, I mean, and you talk about immigrants talk about having to be the best in the room, you know, to overcome your for a name or for an accent or for an whatever, you know, you kind of have to be excellent more than, more excellent than your peers. Yeah. But, but that was like a prerequisite. I had to be excellent, I'll get kicked out. So I say that I didn't sleep for three years, but I, I don't think I did. Writing was the hardest thing to me, for me and in NYU, you have to take a lot of writing classes and those would keep me up at all hours of the night. I would write and rewrite and write and rewrite and write and rewrite and like I couldn't like I would, a whole night would go by and I got I got three paragraphs. Yeah I'm like, Shit. <laughs> So yeah that was hard. So I had to be strategic and I didn't want to make it easy on myself and just take easy classes that I, where I knew I could take a because I also want to wanted to make the most of being there and I had already had all this filmmaking experience. So I tried to lobby for skipping some of the basic introductory classes.
1: <laughs> so you didn't make it easy for yourself. So.
0: I didn't make it easy on myself. But yeah, and you know, and still, even with the scholarship, the remainder that I had to pay, plus the living expenses and the health insurance and yeah. all those things added up. And so I usually had at least a couple of jobs during college. Oh, wow. That's intense.
1: What kind of jobs did you do? So
0: as a student, I was only allowed to work on campus under my student visa. Oh yeah, right, there's that limitation too. So I was a teacher's assistant. I uh, was able to take a lot of classes that I wasn't enrolled in because I was a TA. So that was cool. And then I started working in some restaurants. Mm -hmm. That was a co check. Uh, I did that for a long time in a really nice restaurant. But even you know those nice restaurants, they still wanted you to be legally employed. And I tried to like work my way around it. And I had already been engaged to my boyfriend at the time, and we just decided to go ahead and get married in City Hall because uh, that was going to help with my immigration status, and that was, I was would be able to work uh, outside the school. So yeah, we got married. So I could start the paperwork for applying for a green card, and while the paperwork was in process, I was allowed. I was then getting a work permit Mm -hmm. to work, so I can keep myself uh, surviving in New York, New York
1: City. Wow, there's so much going on at at this time. Do you do you remember being overwhelmed?
0: Yeah, all the time, of course. But one of the first overwhelming moments was to shop for just basic. Groceries. I just remember going to the supermarket, and there was twenty different kinds of laundry detergent, and I was just standing there, totally lost. Like I, I was used to just having one or two brands. I don't like. Why do they have to be twenty brands of laundry detergent? And how do you make the choice? And you just get the cheapest. And I really, I, I got a little lost. The consumerism was scary. Yeah. Like there's so much pressure to buy a lot of stuff all the time. And I wasn't quite sure how to adjust to that.
1: Yeah. I can definitely relate to that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So that was like one overwhelming moment, but I mean, I would get headaches, frequent headaches from reading a lot of English and having to just, um, I think I was just good. My brain was not quite.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I remember that feeling, too, in the First, especially first few months. It's just I remember that feeling of not being able to tune out in class. Like normally you're listening to somebody and you're tuning in, tuning out, and you balance the the load of information that's going in. And when you're when it's a foreign language that you're not super proficient yet in, you're constantly super focused I remember that feeling of just being exhausted from being focused all the time,
0: listening. <laughs> I think you're right. I think you don't develop the same type of mental skimming like, yeah. to like even go through a text or to sit in a lecture. You kind of try to, to understand every single word. I felt like going to class was almost like exercise, like aerobics, <laughs> um, Mm. Yeah, it was intense. It was a lot to take in and to process and to write. And so, you know, it became easy with easier with the years, but the f- first year or two, it was a lot. And I wasn't sure I was cut out for it. I was doubting myself.
1: Tell me more about that. Um, what was the moment where you hit that point where you had the doubt? Well, there are a few.
0: I guess the first one was... December in New York City, walking to class at 7 a.m. down Third Avenue and feeling like my nose was going to fall because it was so freaking freezing. And I just, you know, I grew up in the desert. I like it hot. I was not uh, physically adjusted for that weather. You know, my boyfriend at the time just took me to a store and said, we're going to get you one of these wool coats. And you know a proper some proper clothes and so a that scarf, <laughs> and a a hat. scarf and a hat <laughs> i definitely had moments where i like i'm done i need to get back to israeli winter there were you know several moments like that but on the overall i i felt really free i felt kind of unshackled in a way while i still had very strong emotional, obviously family, you know, a lot was pulling me back and and tying me back to my home country. But I felt free in a way that I've never felt before to like just be around people that are not all white and Jewish. (laughs) You know, it was I felt free to not have to think about the Israeli Palestinian conflict every single day. I felt free being away from my family with all the those complexities. It was a freedom that was welcome at that point. And you know, having told you about my kind of disenchantment with the political uh, or prospects of of peace process in Israel, that was just the heavy burden that I think I needed to put behind in order to like, free myself to think about other things and to do little short films about silly subjects and Mm -hmm. i took amazing classes that that opened my eyes to many different things and i think i had to be away from my home country to do that to do that fully so as you're
1: discovering your new creative curiosity and everything when you're saying like you had doubts about yourself and like thinking maybe you're not cut out of for that. Like, was it, were there any doubts in profession?
0: Well, I guess that's an interesting question. I didn't have a complete realistic or full understanding of privilege and finances. And like, it's just not the kind of question you even bother yourself with or I had, I didn't bother myself with at 21 years old. And so I, realized pretty quickly that NYU was a very prestigious school for school for privileged children and not holding it against them, but it wasn't my experience. And so, for example, to direct the thesis film at NYU, you get, if, if you're, you know, eligible and you get accepted to that class or whatnot, and you'll get the, the kit and the basic equipment, but, you would be expected to spend many thousands of dollars on equipment and transportation and, you know, feeding your crew, um, extra f- buying extra film, extra development. I mean, you name it, it could really add up. And some people would spend 10 or 20 grand on their thesis films. And that's really not something I could even consider. Like, yeah. it just felt, I also was just very alone. You know, my, my previous experience of directing in high school my dad took a week off from work and basically helped me produce the film and was the driver and the cook and the PA and everything. Oh, that's so cool. It's so cool. It was, the, my parents were very supportive, but I didn't have my family there. And so it was really just me putting it together, as was the case for a lot of people who didn't have their families in New York. But um, Yeah, I mean, having to maintain the GPA and work and be alone and try to find the money, extra money to do the film, that just became too much. And um, so I stopped directing. I mostly concentrated on nonfiction. I knew I loved documentaries. And the most influential and kind of inspiring teachers I had in school were some of the great documentarians, Sam Pollard, um, Marco Williams, Judith Helfand, George Stoney. I mean, there was a bunch of really amazing documentary professors and documentary filmmaking teachers. And I gravitated towards those classes as well as the editing classes. So I knew that my strength, uh, I, you know, while I didn't have really the money or connections or infrastructure to direct, um, at the time, I knew I could be effective as an editor, and I actually calculated that if I managed to take summer classes every summer, so between the end of my freshman year and the end of sophomore year, I could finish my degree in three years instead of four. And people didn't understand like what the rush? What's the rush? Like every year that I'm in school and I can't work full time, that's really a financial stretch for me, and. I need to get on with my life. I'm three years older than most of these kids. I had a pretty good idea of, like, I wasn't just going to get a film degree t- for the heck of it, as, as some of these kids, you know, my classmates did, because it seems like a cool thing to do in college. Like, I actually had to worry about establishing a career, a viable career. And, yeah. And, like, make contacts, get professors to write good reference letters, um, make, create a body of work that could help me get a job, you know, real. um, All these things were very present in my decision-making. And I said, okay, I'm going to try to, I, I didn't understand really why everybody didn't do it. And so, yeah, I graduated in three years and that was end of, that was summer of 2001. And, um, I actually got married in Israel that summer and we came back on September 10th, 2001 to New York.
1: Oh, wow. I was just gonna ask you because every New Yorker, I mean, everyone in the world knows where they were and how it happened. And so what was it like for you?
0: We, at that point I had lived with my new husband at the time in Tribeca. We were two blocks away from the World Trade Center we had come back from our honeymoon the night before, and I woke up early because I was jet lagged. I was going to do laundry, and then I heard this, what sounded to me like a big sonic boom. Um, and I woke him up, and he said, "Turn on the TV." And I think he had he had lived there for a few for quite a few years, and he had a memory of being there for the previous World Trade Center bombing. So he had a sense of maybe something like that, and. We turned on the TV and we saw the World Trade Center on fire with the, the plane stuck in it. Um, and I I think, you know, I realized I didn't have any journalistic instincts that day. I think I had some PTSD. I was a little shell-shocked. Like I just sat there. I couldn't really move, couldn't talk. Wow. It kind of reminded me the period of suicide bombings in Israel. I, I can't quite put my finger on what, exactly I was going through, but it was it was really kind of numbing and scary and um, definitely didn't have any, you know, you would think a documentary and instinct to just go and start filming or taking photos or anything. I, I kind of just wanted, if I stay quiet, maybe nothing else will happen kind of thing. And um, yeah. so, yeah, you know, we are very fortunate. We came out without a scratch, but we Our apartment building was in ground zero. So we were evacuated and then not able to come back to the apartment for three weeks. Uh, We had to stay with his relatives in the Upper East Side and then in a hotel. It was rough to be there and to see and smell it and the things we saw on the street, the people covered in ashes, you know, searching for their missing loved ones. It was really difficult time to be in New York. And um, as a recent college graduate, I mean I had just graduated and I had been, I mean if you for a second put aside the devastating human loss. And you know, the the crazy thing is that there was a period of terrorist bombings in Israel mm-hmm. as well. and uh, I mean in the in the months preceding it, and I remember we were waiting for a break, like a brief, pause in the bombing so that we can send the wedding invitations so that the Americans would not be afraid to come to Israel. And nobody came. I mean, it was 200 people on my side and two people on his side. Only his parents came and like a couple of quote unquote crazy friends who were on their way to Egypt. But his siblings Mm -hmm. didn't come, his best friends didn't come. Everybody was really scared of the terrorism in Israel. And it turned out to be you know, really beautiful and quiet and safe and you know, it's the funny, the funny, it's not funny, but we told them, oh, you you will not be anywhere near Gaza Strip. We're like, we're all just on a, you're all going to be staying in a hotel in Tel Aviv. And, you know, the the weekend that everybody got the invitations in the mail was a big bombing in a discotheque in Tel Aviv, like in the, on the Tel Aviv, Aviv, like boardwalk area.
1: Yeah. Oh, I remember that one. So
0: it was like not a, great time for Americans who were considering it to travel. They, they saw it as very dangerous. And then we come back from that wedding to the biggest terrorist attack of all times right down the street in New York City. So, you know, there was a lot of kind of thinking, you know, it's just going to get you wherever you are. It's, it's really no real place to hide. And you just kind of have to live with that threat wherever you go. And it was a difficult time in New York. I had just started freelancing and that company for for a big advertising company and they stopped hiring freelancers. I, I was editing some wedding videos, but that was like, I mean, I was struggling to find work in New York. And we had talked about moving to LA when I graduated and having the still smoldering, smoking, smelly rubble of the World Trade Center two blocks away, I think that give us the push we needed, and we left that spring. So March 2002, I moved to LA with my husband then. Mm -hmm. And what was your husband doing at that time? Uh, He's a musician, so he was trying to write music for film and TV and working on his playing and um, performing and just doing a lot of music things, teaching. So neither super stable? No. No. A documentary
1: filmmaker and a, and a musician. It's a very LA couple, I guess. And what do you feel was the most important thing to do to move your career forward besides being a super hard worker and NYU grad? <laughs> Which there are so many here.
0: So that's that film teacher, that very influential film teacher from high school. I remember he told me cuz I was doubting my you know, talent. Like, can I really compete in, in in the United States, like in in New York, in L. A. And he was like, "They're gonna love you because you work harder than anybody else." I was like, "Oh, that's a thing. Like, that is scarce." I don't know. Like, it means more and more to me as years go by. Mm-hmm. In what sense? I mean, talent in these creative professions. Yes, talent and creativity and the ability to come up with things out of thin air is, is great to have, but you just really have to put in the work. You have to get it done. And yeah. if you don't get it done, it doesn't matter how talented you are or how crazy ideas you get, um, wonderful script ideas, or whatever it is. You still have to, like, it's a lot of hard work. And Mm -hmm. I don't know to tell you that that's like the secret to my success, but for better or worse, you know, call me a workaholic, but I just, I just get it done.
1: (laughs) Well, your IMDb shows for it. I mean, you're, you've, you've been very prolific.
0: I mean, by necessity too. you know, looking back, maybe I, maybe I, I shouldn't have done everything I did and maybe I should have taken Breaks to really consider and navigate my career more intentionally. But I just, I love working. I just love to keep my fingers busy as an editor. I think to keep my fingers and brain busy, it's like maybe if you're an actor and you, you're you not in a play or a class or a film, and it's like, what do you? how can you call yourself an actor if you don't act? So I could call myself an editor if I don't edit. So I didn't care if it was a stupid game show or reality show I was editing so I could call myself an editor. I couldn't wait for that, like for Scorsese to call me and call myself an editor (laughs) if I'm just waiting by the phone to edit. So, so, you know, so for necessity for paying the bills for being, I didn't have somebody to do that for me. So I, I just took job after job after job and so I'm super grateful that I was able to have people trust me and word of mouth helped pretty quick. Because it did take six months to get my first real job. Mm-hmm. And I, was a, I worked as a runner. I worked as a PA. I worked a couple of shifts cutting extra, you know, that magazine show on TV, extra, extra. You know, I, yeah. Yeah. I had odd jobs and some editing, some not. But um, I, I cut anything I could. At home on, on a system I bought at the time, it was pretty expensive to buy an AVID system, even like. Yeah, that's kind of impressive that you did to do that. I think it was like $5,000, which was a lot for me. It was the first loan I took. You know, as, a, mm-hmm. as an international student, you're not eligible to take any loans, but that was the first loan I took as an American, mm-hmm. was my AVID loan. So I was cutting as much as I could. I think I didn't realize at the time that having the certificate and graduating with honors from NYU film school was a pretty good calling card to at least get a chance, Mm -hmm. right? To at least get somebody to take a risk or chance on you and give you an opportunity. I think, I mean, comparing to friends. Israeli friends that didn't have that, that didn't go to a prestigious American university, I am very thankful to my lucky stars for having had that opportunity and having graduated from, you know, one of these top film schools in the country. So um, even when I was working and like, okay with whatever job I was doing, I was always searching for the next job and another job and like, what else is going on? Always checking the leads. I only recently really stopped, but for years, I would like be working, and then at night, looking on Mendy.com and um, Hollywood staffing jobs. Like, I don't remember anymore, but there were like a myriad of websites where you we would find opportunities like that for like low-paying jobs or no-paying jobs. Or ask friends if they knew of anything like that. And um, I was on a DocuLink email list for documentary filmmakers called DocuLink. And on that there, I saw an opening for an editor for um, Moriah Films at the Simon Wissettel Center, which for people who don't know, that's um, the center associated with the Museum of Tolerance in L.A. And they produce a lot of documentaries, mostly historical, that have to do with Jewish history or the Holocaust, but not only. And uh, they were looking for an editor, and I just like, sent my resume. I I just kept sending my resume all the time, all over the place. And I got an interview, and I, you know, said I had to take a long lunch break to do that interview, because i from my job. Mm -hmm. And I got the job. And I, I remember the director liked that I had both narrative and documentary experience, and kind of my chutzpah, I guess, which kind of the Israeli way of just being abrasive a little bit or maybe self assured. I, I can mm-hmm. it's weird because people's perception of me is so different than my in than my own perception of me that it's like <laughs> makes me laugh.
1: Which part of it?
0: I'm like this tough, right? This tough commando Israeli girl who probably killed some people <laughs> in her military service. Untrue. Um, that just like can do whatever and Uh, In my eyes, you like you blow on me and I fall like I just I don't. (laughs) I'm very sensitive to criticism. I'm very sensitive. um, Just period. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I I don't perceive myself as strong as others perceive me, but that I guess for better or worse have worked for me to some extent. (laughs) It clearly has. And then the other thing that I think works, um, because I have, the, I have done a lot of work on, um, on the Decade series for CNN. For those who don't know, I, I started on the se- their second season, which was the 70s. But it's a, it's a documentary series that explores different cultural and historical trends and American history, mostly American history. And so I joined in the 70s and did two episodes for that, in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. Um, They haven't done the arts yet, but I'm sure that's coming soon. And then uh, we did the movies, which was the movies through the decades. Um, And I think I brought uh, what I call a blissfully ignorant perspective. Like, for example, I edited an episode for the 90s about the LA riots and like race relations in America. This is something that was completely foreign to me. I did not grow around it. I was completely unfamiliar with American politics. I did not live in LA or America in the 90s when the riots happened. Like I had to educate myself from the footage and I think that brings kind of a clean palette, a clean slate approach. Like I don't have a preconceived notion of what it means to an American audience. And I don't have the experience of growing up in a racist society or like with those. I mean, sure, there are issues of racism in Israel, no lack thereof. But I can bring that perspective and look at these American stories with a fresh eye and ask questions that I think American editors wouldn't necessarily ask.
1: For sure. Definitely. I feel the same that this foreigner's card that you can always say, Hey, I'm, I, I just don't know.
0: I, I, I had to like shed a lot of ego and, you know, just be able to just ask, what does that mean? How do you spell that word? What does that word actually mean to you? Cause I think my perception of this phrase or this word is different than you. So I always need to find somebody in my production team that I can rely on to be the token American, you know, like, I need to ask you something, like, what does it mean to you when this person says this? Because I think I'm perceiving it in a different way.
1: Well, that's a great way of doing it. That's a great way of dealing with that. Because I remember when I first came to the States, just not understanding, not knowing a lot of cultural context and American culture and American filmmaking is so deeply referential and especially American humor. Yeah. I felt that I will never get to the level of comfort. And it was terrifying to me for a long time. And um I did get over that in my own way, but did you ever
0: have uh any of those fears? Um, but you always feeling a little bit of an outsider and not quite getting it. I mean I think I just got used to having those moments and be okay with it. And like, I'm just not going to always relate to everything. I did try to make it, or at least think about it as an asset. Um, You know, that my differences are an asset. And if somebody doesn't see it like that, that's their loss, you know, in a way. So I treated my femininity, my motherhood, my foreign, national um, identity, uh, all those things. I'm just like, this is what I'm bringing to the table that's different and that could help produce just more diversity of opinion and perspective and point of view. And I probably have very different life experience than everybody else on the team, as, as they do too, you know, mm-hmm. to, to be perfectly honest. I, we live in L.A., where there are more people from outside of LA than, uh, than from LA. And everybody brings very interesting, diverse kind of backgrounds into their work. So it wasn't like I was, you know, a pink elephant, but I was different and I was trying to find people who can embrace it. Mm.
1: How did you detect them? Women. <laughs> right? That's so annoying.
0: I mean, I don't know. Uh, let me think about that one. I'm trying to think if I ever came across like fighting against a an Israeli stereotype, like somebody who thought of me in some way just because I'm Israeli or a foreigner. I don't, you know, I don't know if anything might have helped me. Like I said, people thought I was like super tough, and yeah, maybe that's a desirable quality for. Or director, producer, or an editor. For sure. It's not always true, but hey, if that's what people think of me, I'll go along with it.
1: Yeah. You mentioned that you're sensitive to criticism, which is interesting thing that you would mention that because I would imagine you deal a lot with
0: notes. Endless, all the time. And I take it personally. um, It's hard. (laughs) It's years. Yeah. It's years and years of. That's torture, yeah, if people like who don't understand editing a lot of times, <laughs> criticizing my editing. Um, but you know i I love notes. I mean, really, to be honest, I really believe in the process of editing. I believe in a healthy, long process of editing, and I like people who challenge me to do my best work and push me to clarify things that are not clear and push me to Find the real heart of every scene if I cut something and I get no notes I actually don't want to work with that person Hmm. I actually think it's kind of lazy if I cut something and all you have to tell me that it's good I probably I'm probably not going to think that highly of you. you I need you to tell me that it's shitty I need you to tell me what's wrong with it I need you to tell me how to how you think we can make it better and if you can't tell me that, I have no use for you. Like I yeah. might as well like do something else. If your job is to either be my producer, my director, work with me in some capacity to like create something together, you better be very critical of my work.
1: And you're gonna stay sensitive to it. <laughs> yeah, I mean,
0: you know, I, I'll still try to defend it, but I learned over the years to like listen to it. And I think that interpreting notes is an art. Mm-hmm. In, in editing and filmmaking, sometimes you get a note about a scene not working and you really have to figure out maybe the scene is fine but it's something that led up to it that really wasn't working mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of things like that if we talk more in specifically about editing that it's really the art of deciphering the notes of being really open having your heart your ears your mind open to perceiving the work fresh every time and receiving other people's reactions in a very fresh way and have the time to step away and process it and then figuring out how to, I mean, most scenes I'm mostly proud of. Sometimes scenes I had 10 or more or 50 or more versions of. You have those scenes where it's just magic, you cut them once, it's good to go, but more often than not, you really have to work it and get inspired by other ideas or other, watch other things, come back to it, try something else, maybe go back to your first version, but now you found something else or a new piece of music that just kind of makes it click. So yeah, I love, I love the process.
1: Yeah. And it's it's funny how you said that you wouldn't uh, appreciate some working with someone who doesn't give notes. And I just remember when I got to school here, film school. And to me, it was frustrating that professors, a lot of time were doing this encouragement thing.
0: Oh my God, it was making me crazy. I was like, is this a kindergarten? It's supposed to be, right? High level film school, but the students are the clients. They're paying. Uh, you can't say the wrong thing, or maybe you'll get a call from their parents. And plus they it's even higher stakes because in a place like NYU, professors want to move from I know that now, I didn't know that then. That they're like their entire objective is to move from adjunct to tenured. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in order to get tenured, you gotta have positive reviews by your students. So it's basically all like a popularity thing where the most important thing every semester is when students fill out the questionnaire, the feedback at the end of the semester, and they get to rate their professor. And so your professor is not going to tell you, you just, you you know, that short film you just made, it's kind of shitty. Like you really should consider doing something else with your life or, you know, work a little harder. Yeah. They will never say that. And I remember this one student, I'm not going to name names, but we were in our like introductory sight and sound you know, NYU class. And he did basically softcore porn. I mean, it was like, (laughs) there was no story. There was just like girls wearing nothing, making out. It was really shitty. And it was over. And like, as usual, the professor would ask the class if they have feedback. And some people would like say, oh, I like that shot, I like that reaction, I like your choice of music. And then the professor said something about the continuity or whatever. And I remember like exploding, like, you guys, this is offensive to me as a woman. This is offensive to me as a film student. This is like, I can't believe nobody's saying anything. I was actually like trying to speak my mind and he was like, it's fine. And I thought that was like not a good prep for the real world. If you somebody paid you to do a job and you came up and delivered that, that would probably get you fired. And I thought that was <laughs> helpful for the guy to hear it. And but nobody, like, I wasn't I mean, I wasn't going to tell him, but I was really freaked out by the teacher not saying anything. So huh. yeah, I did, I did, it did teach me something about you know, the structure of American high education institutions and what they're really good for and how to make the most out of my, you know, college experience. Um, probably my lowest point as an immigrant, kind of like crashing into American capitalism in a way that I felt very foreign was when, and this is a very personal and, and, and painful story, but I was trying to, um, I was trying to get my daughter into a private school. It's weird. This is not something I'm used to talking about, but, um, she was identified highly gifted and everybody said we should take her to this one private school in LA that was very, uh, prestigious and really the right fit for her. And I I think going through that process and being rejected twice And being told that we were rejected not because she wasn't fit, but because we couldn't pay full price. The education was so determined by your means. So it was like not how highly gifted you were, but how gifted were your parents' pockets, how deep were your parents' pockets, and how much not only you were able to pay full tuition, but contribute to the school on top of that. Like that. What felt like at the time an oncoming train at full speed crashing into the education system in LA and figuring that out for my children, that has been my biggest struggle as an immigrant. Just not having grown up in it and understood it. In Israel, all the schools growing up Republic, there's no option to go to a pub to a private school. Maybe there was and I wasn't even aware of it. Nobody I knew went to private school. It was a, a very good public school system. And it wasn't like if you wanted better education, you would go to a private school. Everybody went to the public school and it was fine and it was and it was high quality and there was no like different schools for different financial classes of people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think like it wasn't until that point that I really felt foreign. I was like, okay, I'm here without the capital of somebody who maybe have you know have had generations of American families that created wealth that would allow me to send uh, my daughter to such esteemed private school or expensive private school. It's kind of mind blowing to begin with that you would pay thirty to forty grand to go to kindergarten or like elementary school. It's just like beyond crazy, and that the decision would be this call like that, okay, we're not an organization that's here to like cater to your child. We are a private institution that has a board of executive board of directors that has financial goals that is going to, of course, prefer another student who passed the basic requirements, but can pay full price and, and donate on top of that over your child. And you know that was a really rude awakening, and I think it's really the only one that hit really hard. And I think when you yeah when you feel like there's discrimination or some kind of unfairness against your child, it's almost hard. It's almost like worse than if it's towards you. Of course. Well, because and I don't know if
1: that was part of your thinking, but for me, for sure, I don't have kids yet, but I I want to have kids, and I am thinking about all of those things. And now at this point I have a bunch of friends who have kids and I'm seeing what they're going through with, you know, healthcare and school and then extra classes and all those things. And even the supposedly great schools looking at their level that what they're giving to kids makes me doubt it (laughs) to say the least. Um, and that, and the whole money thing just is just crazy. And then I think like, well, I, of course I came here without the intention of staying, but then I I want to succeed here for myself. But the biggest thing I want to do is give something to my kids. And is it the right place then?
0: I mean, we do, I do have a happy ending to that story. It took a lot of legwork. It took a lot of kind of figuring out, but I did find a public magnet program that was a perfect fit for her. So she did Have to switch four different schools in her first three years of school. But we did end up in a really amazing public program that costs nothing. Mm -hmm. And I'm super happy with that. And I'm really happy that I didn't end up with a school that, you know, which she would have to be the poor kid or whatever and and, um, feel totally alien (laughs) or foreign or, you know, because of other things, even though she's like fully American born. And that I saved, you know, twenty or more thousand dollars a year. So I, I think that there is, there's always a way, but it's not as straightforward as like it's like the twenty detergents. It's like, you know, <laughs> it, it, I mean, if I go back yeah. to like it's, there's not just a one neighborhood public school. There's like twenty different detergents that you have no idea. And like you're not going to test each one, you you actually can't in this in this particular school scenario. You can't test this detergent to see if it's going to get you cleaner, better results, more vibrant colors, or whatever. They all promise you like to be the best thing that ever happened to you since sliced bread. But at some point, you have to choose one, and you got to make you know some kind of decision. There is that the same sense of like there's a lot of choice and a lot of choices that are not that great, but you can find something that will work and supplement it with, you know, additional programs, education, um extracurricular activities, whatever you do at home. yeah, you know, it's it's a more of a of a puzzle that you kind of have to figure out than what it would be if i if I had a family in Israel, yeah, so following
1: up on this of uh, on on the alienness and you you kind of mentioned the struggle with capitalism thing. To me, I want to talk about, like, what are the hardest things for you to accept to this day after living more than half of your life here in American society? Because I remember for me, after living here for a little bit, and it remains the same, those things were uh, race, religion, capitalism, and guns. And just the way they play out here is just completely foreign to me. (laughs) And I'm still... Trying to navigate around them.
0: I I gotta say, the last couple years, since it came out, the immigrant family separation is the one issue I just can't get over. It haunts me every day. I think often about kind of praying, and I'm not a religious person. I'm just praying for strength to do more about it. I don't know what can be done. I just it's so painful for me, and uh, I I still have on. My Facebook banner, that image of the small girl being separated from her mom in the border. I spent years of my life working on documentaries about the Holocaust and genocide in general and other, you know, war crimes of that scale. And it seems on that level to me, like the level of cruel, atrocious treatment of human beings and children that are forever lost and cannot be reunited with their parents. I just living in a time where I am allowing this to happen. And I don't know what to do to not allow this to happen. And whether I can live in a country that in some way condoned it and people, a lot of people go to sleep every night and it's still happening. I just, I don't know. Like that's the most painful thing to me. And I know that's the last couple of years, but I for me, that's when people talk about the
1: yeah.
0: failures of this administration, or why you know what debate there can be about Trump. And like for me, the debate starts and ends there. Like I just can't. I don't know why the debate, the presidential and vice presidential debates, can be just about that, because I feel yeah. like that's the most urgent issue of our time, and I can't go past. I can't get past that. I know I, I'm a little bit on a soapbox here. But if you ask me, like, what bothers me, it's, I, I just don't know what else, I, like anything else. Not that it pales in comparison, because there's a, there's a lot of very serious issues of inequality and, and violence and, yeah, you know, to discuss. But as long as we're keeping young children away from their parents, I just don't know if anything else can be even discussed. So... As, as a mother, as a human being, that's just really pains me on a daily basis. And I have to get that off my chest.
1: Yeah. Uh, and it's great that I, thank you.
0: And it's funny because I, like, I, it's not something that I wear on my sleeve, but that, you know, that same week that the news came out about those camps in, tex- camps in Texas and the displacement of children from their parents, I, I, it just kind of took over me in a way that I couldn't quite, I, I never totally bounced back. And I haven't done creative work about this. I kind of hope to find a project that deals with that. I did watch The Fight. It's a new documentary about the ACLU. And one of the storylines is about family separation. And that really touched me in, in, a, in a deep way. Um, so I hope there's more you know, films and other creative work that is, that is going to be done to keep it in the news. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like it, there was a hot moment where everybody was talking about it and then it kind of fizzled out. Yeah. And I just couldn't bring myself to change my profile picture or the banner. I just I kind of got stuck in that moment and I couldn't let go until it's solved. And until it's solved, I just think we can't do, really talk about anything else. So,
1: I think, I, I think it's very important to to try to keep at least part of focus on that. I mean, obviously there's just so much going on with the pandemic and with this crazy election. Things do fall off the media radar. And I was kind of, same as you, I was kind of baffled with this whole, they just dropped it. And there are still children who are separated and will probably never be reunited. And I really don't understand how, in this day and age of such supreme technologies how is that acceptable possible and okay
0: well we're we're not going to solve this here but i do think that uh the information is there if you want it you know we say never forget but i was making Documentaries about things that would never happen again, but we just talk, have to talk about it, so they wouldn't happen again. I, I never in my life thought I would be living at a time where such atrocities were happening on a daily basis, and there was nothing I could do to stop them. I do think that you know, there's something like, like I'm, I'm always going to be connected to other Israelis, just mm-hmm. like by my DNA. Yes. I feel in a, in a weird way, I feel like that connected to other immigrants. And so it does hit me, I think, in a way. When I hear about this treatment in the border, I feel almost like survivor guilt. But like, oh, I don't have that hatred and policy against me. And like nobody's trying to stop me from having, you know, little white Jewish girls in, in the valley in L.A., mm-hmm. But they sure do to other, you know, when I came in and I had a time here that, that like my legal status was a little mm-hmm. iffy and I was almost deported because I left without the correct papers and my green card was still pending. It was very complicated to figure out and I had to pay an immigration lawyer to get me out of that mess. You know, if I was brown, if I was Mexican, if I was trying to cross the border illegally, the same, you know, same everything, maybe even same skill, you know, that. That would not be my faith. So, I feel some kind of camaraderie with other immigrants here. I, I, I think that's kind of ingrained in us as American immigrants. I don't know. what I feel it that way.
1: I definitely feel that way too. And and I really I, I really love everything that you're saying right now because I think, again, for me, that's another reason why I want to create this podcast as kind of a community and a platform for people for us comrades aliens and that's why i called it we the aliens to to you know share the strength and and get the strength from that community because we are one of the biggest minorities in this country and we rarely speak of our ourselves and i don't uh I don't appreciate identity politics, and that whole thing is a a whole different, you know, separate can of worms. But supporting each other and taking strength from uh, other people's experiences, I think, is so valuable. And so I think it's so great that you feel that way too. (laughs) I feel that then I'm not alone in that uh, feeling that I want to support others, Um, and I and I hope that this you know, sharing those stories will be something that we can do, you know?
0: Well, you're doing it.
1: Yeah, uh, we are. And, you know, to wrap it up on something a little more, you know, positive, um, what do you feel is the biggest gain? And I don't mean, you know, career-wise, more in terms of your personal growth that you got out of being an immigrant.
0: I think that coming against a lot of obstacles and sort of not always going above them, sometimes going through them or around them or just like hitting on that wall until I could get a crack. Like that just kind of helped me be less fearful of facing walls and closed doors and just like keep, keep hitting at it Pounding, I don't know, knocking it down, knocking and knocking on the same door again and again. Like I just think, it made me a little more fearless. Mm-hmm. Not to say that I'm that I am fearless, but it helped me on that trajectory.
1: That's it for today. I hope it was fun. Now go watch Seduced on Stars and tune in on Thursday for my conversation with Enbail about the show. And one last thing, please tell a friend about the podcast or share it on social media or do both. I mean, I'm going to I'm going to tell you a secret. You don't have to even call your friend to tell them about the podcast. Like just today, instead of a cat meme, send them this podcast. It's so easy. I mean, I'm totally cool making it just for you, but don't be greedy. And remember, we're here to stay. We'll find our way. Thank you for listening. Love you all.
0: Peace. This is my country, my damn country And it don't mean a thing